Well, uh, before I begin, what a wonderful evening last night. We, um, for those of you that weren't able to make it, our banquet last night, our anniversary, our first anniversary as a church, we celebrated and it was incredibly sweet. It was just everything I could have asked for in a celebration and I'm so glad that so many of you were able to make it and join us. The Lord has been very good to us this year. Um, I had the privilege of preaching this morning at Castlewood Baptist Church in Vallejo, filling in for Pastor John Armstrong. He was away doing a, a wedding for when he was a college pastor, and uh, it was really encouraging to share with them because they're part of our Baptist Association, and they're giving towards um, the cooperative program, towards missions, actually money their money theoretically could come to support us as church planters in as North American missionaries and so I got to share with them uh, some of the same celebration that we've been going for a year and the Lord has been very good to us so well we're in first John chapter 4 verses 1 to 6 um, this afternoon and we've been going through the book of first John we took a break for Easter yesterday, and you'll have to give me a moment here to find my file because I still have the sermon from this morning, um, and that was in Romans, so that's not where I want to be. First John chapter 4, and I want to read to you verses 1 to 6 to begin from First John chapter 4. And then I want to go back and give us the context of these six verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error so we have this subject that it wouldn't be my first choice to tackle in a sermon uh, false teachers and antichrists and but this is one of the hope of and and the joy of expository verse by verse preaching through the bible is that you have to deal with these subjects as you go through them and so we're going to look in the context and so actually i want to go back to that first uh slide before the scripture reading which uh, gives the overall outline of the book that we've been heading through. And if you remember, if you want to look at 1 John 5, 13, um, the, the main point of John's writing this epistle, this letter, is he says in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so he wants his audience to know they have eternal life. And in the big picture, after he had started with the prologue saying, hey, I was with Jesus. I held, beheld him with my eyes. I touched him with my hands. All of these things I received concerning the word of life I'm giving to you. 
So he starts the book with his credentials as an eyewitness, as an apostle. And then he shares really three attributes of God as an outline. God is light, and he dealt with this, this contrast of light and darkness. But we want you to have assurance that you're in the light if you've believed in Jesus. You're no longer in the darkness. You've passed out of darkness, and you're now walking in the light. And then he deals with God being righteous and this reality that as children of God, we're children of the righteous God. And the reason we can be called righteous is not because of our good deeds, but because of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. He's our righteousness. And that's why we can have hope is because if we based it on our own righteousness and we're honest, we don't measure up. All we have to do is look at the past week probably. And we don't need to be that honest with one another, right? If it's forgiven, it's under the blood. We can forget about it. But the reality is, this past week we've demonstrated that we, if it was based on our obedience alone, we would never have any assurance. But it's not. It's based upon the righteousness of another, the Lord Jesus on our behalf. And then he, he, he shows that it should encourage you that not only do you get the righteousness of Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit when you're born again so that now you love one another. And it's a confirmation. In fact, two realities in chapter 3. Those verses 11 to 24. We can know we passed from death to life when we show love towards the brothers and sisters. And we can know that God dwells in us because of the Holy Spirit given to us, which brings us assurance. And so John, in the midst of talking about the righteousness of God, talks about these false teachers. And he had already brought them up in chapter 2 and said they went out from us because they weren't of us. And they had evidently caused a division in the church. This church perhaps had a church split over doctrine. And we're going to see here in chapter 4, it's regarding the person of Jesus. Did he really come in the flesh? or not. Now what's interesting is if you read one of the earliest works in church history about false teaching, heresy, Irenaeus, he was an early church father who lived between 100 and 200 AD, he wrote a book called Against Heresies. And in it, he talks about some of the heresies that were around at this time. In fact, I'm going to read you a portion of this because I think it pertains. He says, there was a, a man named Serenthus, a man who was educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians. He taught that the world was not made by the primary God, but by a certain power far separated from him. And at a distance from that principality who is supreme over the universe and ignorant of him who is above all. So he, he said, this, this guy, Serenthus, who was a false teacher, said that, yeah, God didn't make the heavens and the earth. Some other power did. And concerning Jesus, he represented Jesus as having not been born of a virgin, but as being the son of Joseph and Mary, according to the ordinary course of human generation, while he was nevertheless more righteous, prudent, and wise than other men. So in other words, Serenthus taught that Jesus was just a really good person, a man who was born of Joseph and Mary. But here's the key. Moreover, after his baptism, Christ descended upon him in the form of a dove from the supreme ruler 
And then he proclaimed the unknown father and performed miracles. But at last, Christ departed from Jesus, and then Jesus suffered and rose again, while Christ remained impassable inasmuch as he was a spiritual being. So you hear what Serenthus was teaching, that the Christ, God the Son, only came upon Jesus at his baptism and left him right before the cross. So it was more like a possession than it was Jesus being God. And that has implications, of course, for our salvation, because if Jesus isn't God, then he's not the righteous one who died in our place, and we can have no assurance because then our salvation is based upon what we do or don't do. Another one, he says, are a group called the Ebionites that agree with Serenthus and some other guy named Carpocrates. There's a child's name if you need one, Carpocrates, I don't know. Um, now that's uh, obviously the Greek world 2,000 years ago. So this was going on in the early church. This attack, it, it, the theologians later called it the adoptionist view. That Jesus was adopted by God the Son and, and the Christ, God the Son, came down upon Jesus at his baptism and left him before he suffered. And the reason why that view became popular was because the Greeks had an idea that flesh was bad and spirit was good. It, it actually arose into a full-blown movement by the 400s called Gnosticism. That anything physical is evil and anything spiritual is good. And Jesus couldn't have really been a man because physical is evil and Jesus is good. So that view was called docetism because the Greek word dakeo means to seem like a man. He just, he seemed like a human, but he wasn't really. So that would be like the Jesus is a ghost kind of view and he didn't really have a human body he just appeared to maybe like a really good illusion or trick so there are many others in this area at the time of John writing this letter that claimed to have truth that claimed to be indwelt by God that had received the spirit claimed to be speaking in his name and John had already addressed them back in chapter 2. As I said in verse 19, they went out from us but were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they're not of us. He said they're, they're one of the antichrists. And, and here in chapter 4, he's going to basically answer the question, what is the test for a false teacher? And that's what we see in verses 1 to 3. And verse 1 is interesting because he says, Beloved, brothers and sisters, beloved in the church, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. This is one of only seven commands in the whole letter. And so it's kind of interesting that what he's commanding them is everybody, all Christians, must test the spirits. Now that doesn't mean that we're like digging under every rock and every whole and we've decided our whole life needs to be dedicated to finding out who false teachers are it's in the context of the local church it's in the context of people who come in and we're going to see in verses two and three deny something very specific about jesus and obviously this had happened in this local church there was these religious leaders that were teaching that jesus didn't really become a man they had left the church, they had gone out, 
And now the people remaining, perhaps they were thinking, did I make the right decision? Should I have left with those teachers? Am I right in staying? I mean, they claimed that they had the corner on truth. They claimed that they knew what was really true about Jesus. And what we have, we have the teachings of the apostles, but none of the apostles are here. So you could see why they would lack assurance. Why they would think, maybe, I, maybe I'm not believing the right message in, in this case. Evidently, these professing Christians that had gone away were teaching false things, things and claiming it was from the Holy Spirit. Now, he had, as I mentioned, talked about it in chapter 2. But what he's basically going to say is, behind every truth claim is a spirit, a panuma in the Greek. But not every spirit is the Holy Spirit of God. That's what he's saying. So that's why we have to test. We have to be discerning. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 3 said, Therefore I want you to understand no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, false teachers have been around for a long time. In fact, if we go back to the book of Deuteronomy, to chapter 13, we see that at the time of Moses, there were false teachers. Deuteronomy chapter 13. Verse 1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that tells you comes to pass and if he says, let us go after other gods which you've not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commands and obey His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he's taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now in the Old Covenant, Israel was a nation and these laws were to rule their country. And so the death penalty was prescribed for false teachers. You come to the New Covenant... We don't see that death penalty re-prescribed. The reason is, is because we are not a nation anymore as Christians. In the new covenant, we're from every nation, tribe, and people, and tongue. And so, John says, the reality of false teachers is they go out from us. Because they were not of us. They're gone. And so you, he's going to say, and I don't want to steal my own thunder here, but he's going to say, you cling to the gospel. You cling to this message concerning Jesus that you heard from the apostles and was passed down. And you have the Holy Spirit to confirm it to you so you know the truth. And that's verses 5 and 6. So from the beginning of days, Moses said, hey, there's going to be false teachers. Jesus himself in Matthew 7, verse 15, warned us that false teachers would arise. Matthew 7, verse 15 Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus warned about this. Paul warned about this to the church at Ephesus in Acts 20. He says, after my departure, there will be false shepherds, false teachers that arise from among the elders, the leaders of the church. In fact, turn over to Acts 20. Look at what he says here. This is incredible. Uh, 
It's not that they just sort of pop up, you know, in the nursery, I suppose, if to use that example. It's not the kids in the nursery. It's not the, the little ones that are, you know, yeah, they might say some false teaching, but they're not going to lead crowds astray, right? It's among the leadership. Look at this, Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves. So he's talking to the elders at Ephesus. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, the elders, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so he says, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And I commend you to God in the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Peter takes a whole chapter, 2 Peter 2, to warn about false teachers. And Jude takes his whole book. That's a chapter. But doesn't that sound great? A whole book. And he warned us of false teachers. We'll look at Jude a little bit later. So what's going on? Well, here's the reality. Satan is trying to undermine the gospel in any way he can. And John warns us to test the spirits. And so what we see second, about really what the test is of these false teachers in verses 2-3 to three is that the incarnation and its importance for righteousness is the test. It's a little awkward sentence. I was trying to keep it concise. But the actual incarnation of God the Son, the eternal Son becoming the incarnate Son, and dying as a substitute in our place so that we could have His righteousness, that's the issue. So it's a gospel issue. That's the test. Verses 2 and 3, back in 1 John 4, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. The incarnation is how we know God. Do you remember that in John 1? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he says later in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Now, Jesus coming in the flesh... Every Christian who has the Spirit believes and confesses this. Jesus really came in the flesh. He didn't just seem to come. It wasn't just a possession. He really came. And it's tied to His mission to save us for our sin, from our sins by dying in our place. In fact, uh, Jason's going to cover it next week, but go down a few verses to 1 John 4.10. Here's where we see the connection to righteousness. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Big word, propitiation, but it means satisfaction. He satisfied the righteous requirement of God's character. God must punish sin. He's holy. And God so loved the world, He gave His Son to be our substitute so that our sin could be punished on His Son 
in our place on the cross so that we could be forgiven and have life. This is the heart of the gospel. And this is what John is saying. Listen, if somebody denies this, they don't have the Spirit. They're speaking from a Spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit teaches this. Isn't that incredible? False teachers deny the importance of the incarnation. And this can be done in many ways. We saw in the early church the adoptionist view of the, you know, just coming upon Jesus at baptism. The docetist view that he just seemed to be a man. Other In church history, we've seen other groups. For example, uh, sometimes people emphasize a, a different part of Jesus' ministry as being more important than the incarnation. More important than his substitutionary death. I have an example from the, 19, the eight, late 1800s, uh, classic Protestant liberalism that arose in Germany. There was a German scholar named Schliermacher. What a, what a name. And um, it's fascinating. So he had grown up in pietist Moravian circles, and he was tired of the dead orthodoxy that he saw in the German churches in the 1800s. And so his answer was to basically say, doctrine divides, love unites. And so he redefined all the words of the gospel. So sin is no longer breaking God's law. It's just God forgetfulness. And redemption is Jesus. It's not Jesus dying as a substitute in our place so that we could have his righteousness. It's simply that Jesus was the most God conscious person on the earth. He was just a man. He wasn't God. But he was the most God-conscious man on the earth. And so redemption, in Schliermacher's definition, is receiving the same kind of God-consciousness through Jesus by getting to know Jesus. So emulation. You see Jesus, you try to be like Him, you have more God-consciousness, therefore you have redemption. Incredible. This is what caused... Um, all of the conservative seminaries in America to go liberal in the late 1800s and early 1900s. The Princetons and the Harvards and the Yales. And when I use the word liberal, I'm not talking about politics, I'm talking about theology. And liberalism was a name that these theologians took upon themselves. So it's actually a very specific name of theology that is still around today where you and I see it is when we watch National Geographic shows on Easter or on Jesus. They always interview these theologians who come from that heritage. Perhaps another group, and perhaps one of the, one of the commentators said what might have been going on in this church is that Jesus came and died and was buried and rose again and went back to heaven but because the Holy Spirit had been given, and John talked about that in chapter 3, that now these false teachers were saying, you don't need Jesus, you need the Spirit. Like pitting the Holy Spirit against Jesus. I don't find that as compelling, but it might be what's going on here. The Spirit of Antichrist, what we do know for sure is that it's been in the world since the Incarnation. That's what John says in chapter 2. And... Satan has taken the opportunity to mislead and give misunderstanding about the person and work of Jesus for 2,000 years. It's no surprise that in the first 500 years of the church that every major uh, council that gathered was to deal with an issue of the person and work of Jesus. The Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. 
was, did Jesus, is he co-equal with God, co-eternal, or is he sort of like a Superman or demigod? And they, they condemned Arius as a heretic. I don't want to go through all of church history, but I, you can come take my church history at the seminary and we could go through it. But um, it, over and over again, Council of Constantinople, the Council of Chalcedon, the Council at Ephesus, all of these councils were dealing with an attack on the person and work of Jesus. It's no accident Satan was trying to undermine the gospel from the beginning of the church, and he still does it today. Now, verses 4 to 6, I love what John says here, and the way I've summarized it is, we help each other. Can you go to the next slide, Cade? We help each other test the false teachers. We're not alone in this. I love what John does here. All Christians have the indwelling Holy Spirit to confirm the truth to them. Verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Who's them? The false teachers. For he who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. What a confidence. You know, if, isn't that intimidating? John says in verse 1, all of you got to test the spirits. Now, who feels qualified to start testing all the ideas and and claims out there? Not me. I have a PhD and I don't feel qualified. John then goes on to say in verse 4, in the next breath as it were, don't worry little children. I want to write this to you because you're from God and have overcome them, those false teachers. Because the one who's in you the Spirit who's in you, the Holy Spirit, He's greater than the Spirit who's in the world. We don't have to fear. He gives us a command and then He tells us, don't you worry. I've given you the Spirit to do this. We can be assured we have eternal life and are Christians, He's going to say in chapter 5, verse 13. Not because of some mystical experience, but because we're believing the truth about Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is pointing us to. They overcame the false teachers by remaining in the church. Remember the story, the kind of the context? These false teachers left the church. These Christians are remaining. What's the proof of their remaining? They didn't follow the false teachers. They stayed in the church. The false teachers went out, but those who remained stayed committed to the gospel proclamation they heard and demonstrated that the Holy Spirit in them is greater than the false spirit that's in the world. Now, what does world mean? We talked about this a few weeks ago. But world, in John's use in 1 John, he tells us not to love the world or anything in the world. So he's not talking about the planet. He's not talking about life as we experience it in this world. He's talking about that ordered system of which Scripture tells us Satan is the originator, the organizer, and the head. And that the fallen angels, the demons, are his emissaries and the human race who is not saved become his subjects, according to Paul in Ephesians 2. We're under the prince of the power of the air who's at work in the sons of disobedience. And the goal of this world system is to lead all of creation in a life of total independence from God. You don't need to follow God. You can find all your happiness and satisfaction and joy in this world. Well, if we've lived life any length of time, we find out that is life with regret. And it never satisfies. It never saves. It never delivers. That's why 
you have all of these famous illustrations like Pascal, the, the great mathematician. You, you know him from math class. He actually was a Christian, and he said inside of all of us is a God-shaped hole that only God can fill. Isn't that an incredible thought that we try to fill it with all sorts of things? Career, money, sex, pleasure, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, we try to fill it, and it doesn't satisfy. Only God satisfies. So John is repeating this theme of two spheres that he had started in chapter 2. Spiritual life and spiritual death, truth and falsehood, good and evil, light and darkness. And he tells them that loving the world and wanting to participate and enjoy what's in the world is enjoying what's in rebellion against God. That's what he had said in chapter 2. In fact, turn back to chapter 2, verse 16. I'm not... uh, Yes, 16. All that's in the world... The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world offers three ways in which that void can be filled. The lust of the flesh, the system says, you can find fulfillment in life by satisfying all the desires you can. The lust of the eyes, the tendency to be captivated by the outward show of things without inquiring into their real value. It's beauty divorced from the love of God. Or the pride of life, this arrogance related to our external circumstances, our wealth, our rank, our dress, our pedigree. This desire to outshine everybody else. The world then is that part of humanity that prefers to walk in darkness according to John. It rejects the gospel that Jesus offers. And sometimes the way it rejects it, false teachers, is by perverting it. Doesn't sound like they're rejecting the gospel, but they change it so that it's another gospel by perverting it. But we don't have to fear. When we're tempted or threatened by deception from Satan, and think of the ways that that temptation comes. Discouragement. Have I been believing the right thing? It doesn't seem to be working in my circumstances. Am I believing the right thing? Or perhaps it's anxiety. Is this too good to be true? Is it really all the promises really going to work out? Is God going to save and deliver me? Or maybe even cowardice. Look at all of the smart people that don't believe in Christianity. What about all those claims? You know, you hear Christianity is just a crutch or Christianity is just a way to, it's the opiate of the masses or whatever the slogan is. Maybe the cowardice is, man, the whole world seems to think it's ridiculous. What am I doing believing it? We don't have to fear. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. One of the Spirit's ministries is to calm your heart, to assure you of the truth, to remind you that what you're believing is an absolute anchor and rock to your soul. You will never be disappointed. You will never be put to shame. All of God's promises are yes and amen. God the Father and God the Son, through God the Spirit, are abiding and dwelling in you, Christian. And you can trust Him. What is the victory that overcomes the world? Turn over to 1 John 5, verse 4. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. 
And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Oh, that's great hope. Because one of the biggest attacks on the gospel is thinking that the way you overcome the world is by what you do or don't do. And John says, no, you want to know how you overcome the world and the temptations of the world? Your faith, believing the Spirit of God in you, God will renew you and work through you by your believing the gospel. That is good news. Amen. The truth about Jesus and His gospel then, verses 5 and 6, is welcomed by the church. Turn back to 1 John 4, 5 and 6. Well, that was kind of odd, 4, 5, and 6. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. They're from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever's, from God, whoever's not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Do you notice how John, he begins to use things like they and us. Them and we. And he says, there's these two spheres, the world and from the world and from God, and we have the truth. That's incredibly helpful to us. You see, we're not alone in this. We help each other test the false teachers. And by, by that, I mean not just us in this room, which is certainly true, but all the other Christians who are clinging to the gospel in church history, the shoulders that we stand on of those who've gone before us and have been faithful to the truth. All of the other pastors and teachers who've been passing this truth down to the church and all the disciplers who pass it down to their disciples and all the parents who pass it to their children. This is the reality that we have this great hope that what we're believing is not subject to just my personal take on it i can have confidence verse 5 the false teachers may claim to be from christ john won't call them christians he says they've rejected the truth concerning jesus even while teaching the world about their version of jesus and of course the world welcomes their distorted version of jesus john uses we in verse 6 to include all that welcome John's apostolic message. That's what it means when he says we are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. I don't think he's talking about listens to all of us in particular. He's saying listens to us who were eyewitnesses. It's why he started the beginning of the book with his eyewitness testimony, that which was from the beginning, one one, which we heard, which we saw with our eyes which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we've seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son Jesus Christ and we're writing these things to you that our joy may be made complete. What a wonderful thought. We have eyewitness testimony that's been written down in Scripture that is the help to us to test the spirits. That is a great hope. We're like-minded as it were kindred with John. Of course, he goes on to say that we shouldn't be surprised uh, that the world doesn't receive our message well. 
That's what he says in verse 6. Whoever's not from God does not listen to us. Now, how would we listen to the apostles' teaching today? Well, I would argue, since I'm an advocate for expository preaching, that that kind of preaching, running through the context and the meaning and letting the Apostle John's words speak for themselves out of the Scriptures, explaining and applying what John intended by his meaning is the best way to preserve the apostolic message. And who gets to speak for God in this world about His Son? Well, that encourages us then because if we have the Scriptures, all of us get to. Because we have the Spirit of God. And the Spirit, through the apostolic teaching received from Jesus and placed in the Bible, is given to us. And in God's wisdom, He's given us this Word for 2,000 years that we can take to people. And we can share with them. And they can read it. And they can understand what God says concerning His Son. Turn over to Jude. It's right before Revelation, the second to last book of the Bible. It's only one chapter, so you could flip right by it. I mentioned the whole book. Jude wrote the whole book about false teachers. I don't want to read the whole book to you, even though it is only one chapter. I want to look first at the beginning and then at the end. He says, verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation i found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints that's really encouraging how he uh, describes uh, our gospel message he says you need to contend you need to fight for and in the greek it's like one clause the faith once for all delivered to the saints The whole package. So what he's talking about, the faith isn't our faith in Jesus. The faith is that body of knowledge concerning Jesus that was once for all delivered to the saints from the apostles. And he says it's like a a treasure that you need to fight for. He goes on to say, verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He sounds just like John. They came in, they're denying Jesus, and in doing so, they're teaching another gospel that promotes sin. Now now go to the end of the book. You can take your time and read through the whole book itself, but go to verse... Well, let's start in verse 20. Nope. Verse 17, let's start there. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It's these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. That's the same categories. They're of the world and they don't have the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to show, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by 
the flesh. He, he gives them this command, keep yourselves in the love of God, and he explains in kind of a, a complicated sentence there because the way we keep ourselves in the love of God is in the prior verse. So the command is in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, but the way we do it is in verse 20, building ourselves up in the most holy faith, that is the gospel that he mentioned in verse 3, the faith once for all delivered to the saints from the apostles, and praying in the Holy Spirit, that is keeping in step with the Spirit in prayer and communion with God. And then he gives us the motive at the end of verse 21, the motive is the gospel waiting on the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The reason we want to draw near to the Father and stay in His love is because He promised us through His Son that He's going to give us eternal life. And so we're clinging to Him as a child. What, a, what an incredible picture. But the last word is not you keeping yourselves in the love of God in Jude, is it? What does he go on to say in the doxology, verse 24? Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So who does the ultimate keeping, you or God? God. An incredible thought. And he says he's going to present you and I blameless without fault in the presence of a holy God with great joy. Well, then what's the only response to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. What a thought. The Spirit is the means by which the Father keeps us in His love. One last verse in 1 John 3, right before our section that we covered today in chapter 4 the verse right before whoever keeps his commandments 324 abides in God and God in him and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us oh this gift of the spirit is precious to us it reminds us that our father loves us that he loves us so much he gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins and that the Father is now dwelling and abiding with us and in us by His Spirit, and so is the Son, and so is the Holy Spirit. So all three persons of the Trinity are abiding in us by the Spirit. God is committed to us. He calls us children. That's, John says it, that, that we are God's children. And so it is, even though it hasn't yet been revealed. And so we don't have to fear even when there is a very real threat of false teachers because greater is the one who's in us than the one who's in the world, which is our triune God. And so we can know we have eternal life and we don't have to fear that some false teacher is going to lead us astray if we cling to Jesus and his gospel message. Father, thank you for this word. What a refreshing reminder how we need to cling to Jesus, how we need to stay true to that faith once for all delivered to the saints. And it brings great hope. Great hope even to those who are doubting, those who are discouraged, those who are anxious, those who are fearing, that if they believe in Jesus, they'll never be put to shame. 
They'll never be disappointed. All of your promises are yes and amen in your Son. And you've given us your Spirit as the down payment and pledge of that inheritance. Father, and if the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, is the down payment, what is the fullness? This is good news and it brings us great joy and great hope. Encourage your children, Father. Encourage them. Whatever they're dealing with, whatever they're going through, whatever sin they battle in their lives, whatever temptations and trials that they are confronted with today or this week, would you remind them that greater is the one who's in them than the one who's in the world? They don't have to fear. They don't have to fear that they're going to lose this great salvation. They can know that they have eternal life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.